Hello, and welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Dave Baxter, the Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and joining me today are Michael John Lytle, founder of the fixed income ETF provider Tabula Investment Management, and personal finance editor Leonor Walters. From the latest trade war noises to concerns about the inversion of the yield curve, there's been plenty to keep investors worried and on their toes this year. As we've discussed on this show, the anxiety this has caused has seen investors pile into bond funds. In particular, People have been buying strategic bond funds. Uh, These are active funds which can invest across the fixed income universe. But some investors are also going down the passive route. And many of them are now using ETFs, which can offer a simple, cheap form of exposure to very specific areas of the asset class. MJ, thanks for uh, joining us today. Pleasure. Um, there are obviously many different ways if you uh, if you buy an ETF that you can access bonds right now. So far this year, um, where have you been seeing the greatest demand from investors? Uh, thank you very much, Dave. You know, traditionally, the fixed income assets that have been invested through ETFs uh, have mm-hmm. been split pretty much between corporate credit exposure and mm-hmm. govy debt. Um, that continues to be relatively true, though we've seen a shift from government bonds to corporates in the last eight months. The inflows into investment grade, high yield, basically investors looking for more yield and fighting against the negative yield curves that we have in the European governments. Um, which there is also quite a big slice of the market that's focused on inflation. I think that's kind of gone sideways at this point because no one's overly convinced that there's inflation to be worrying about today, although we've had cycles of that throughout the year. However, we have heard quite a lot from investors about wanting better inflation tools. Mm, and what's this? Well, I mean, if you think about it um, in the inflation space, um, your traditional investment is your underlying government uh, tips products in the U.S., your gilt linkers uh, in the U.K. Ba- these are government bonds um, mm. that have a fixed rate interest uh, and then an inflation component where you either um, you, you vary basically the principle based on the movement in, in inflation and therefore you get some sort of exposure to inflation. However, these bonds are mainly driven by interest rate exposure. Um, and so some people have also used inflation derivatives as a way of gaining more pure play inflation exposure. And and we've heard a lot of feedback from investors that sort of varying the mix of how they own this between the government underlying linkers exposure and the derivative um, can be interesting. Mm, well, I mean, what are the big sort of differences there in terms of kind of pros, cons? Well, an inflation derivative is a an insurance contract effectively. So you're, you're purchasing exposure to inflation, which will protect, which will give you a payout in the event of a change in inflation, but it does very little for you in terms of yield. Mm. Uh, whereas a government linker has an inherent yield. And so as you're sitting on the position, you at least get paid at coupons on an ongoing basis. And so when you look at the performance of these two things over the course of the last few years, anybody who is in a derivative position was basically just paying away for the protection, um, but not Mm. seeing any meaningful change in inflation, therefore never getting their big payback. People sitting on tips positions and gilt linkers um, have seen more yield, but it's unclear how well positioned they would be if there were a meaningful change in inflation. Mm, mm, Interesting. So I guess um, that kind of leads me on to another point, which is with these ETFs, you're seeing 
Uh, obviously, investors can use them as a form of core exposure. So you could buy your government bond ETF, that kind of thing. But also you're seeing increasingly sort of creative and kind of niche products on offer. Um, in terms of the demand you've been looking at recently, what's what's the balance there between your, your core approach and your... So I think it's important to look at fixed income compared to equities. And mm. I think you can compare it in two fundamental ways. One is the size of the market. And so as we know, fixed income is in the high 20s percent of ETF assets. Equities is more like 60-something percent. On the flip side, in the world, the assets invested in fixed income versus equities, equities is about a 50 trillion asset class and fixed income is a 100 trillion asset class. Mm. And so the fixed income asset class is a much larger asset class for a variety of reasons, but that's not reflected in the proportion of AUM in the ETF space. So you've got a bit of a truing up that needs to go on over time if um, investors use fixed income assets, uh, fixed income ETFs in proportion to the size of the asset class. Mm. The second is that the equity asset class 10 years ago was a very, uh, the equity ETF asset class was very plain vanilla. So we yeah. basically had FTSE 100, S&P 500, Eurostocks 50, these sorts of things being delivered in ETFs and not much else. So over the last 10 years, it's become far more complicated with a lot of smart beta, if you like the term, mm. um, and um, active strategies being brought in in the equity space. If you look at fixed income, we have not seen that development of product yet. Half the assets in the fixed income space are represented by 30 fixed income ETFs out of four or 500 fixed income ETFs. And those are relatively simple cash bond products. So I think we have a whole product development cycle that could go on in the fixed income space, delivering what we might call fixed income factors. Mm. Um, and if you think of fixed income factors, they're not exactly identical to equity factors. So, you know, we talk about equity factors, growth, momentum, low beta, these yeah. sorts of things. Some can be translated into the fixed income space. Some don't translate particularly well. For example, there's a credit factor in the fixed income space, which doesn't exist in equity. Mm. And this is the difference between when a corporate issues and when a government issues. So when we look at the German government issuing, we call this a risk-free rate. Mm. Uh, when we see IBM issuing, we talk about that as being a risky asset issued by a corporate. And the difference between the IBM and the German government is a spread, which we say is the corporate mm. credit spread. That's the credit factor. Credit factors are pretty consistently positive and they move around. And so there's value to investors in buying spread-based products, even when the absolute risk-free rates go negative. Mm -hmm. So if we look at German governments, which are, you know, negative out to 10 years, um, same similar dynamics in Switzerland and the Nordic countries that have yep. their own currencies, um, you can address this problem by uh, going after the credit factor and trying to harness that to get yield. So is that one of the kind of big popular kind of factors you're seeing? Is there anything else? I, I wouldn't are... call that big and popular because the way it's been captured up till now is through things like um, shortening the interest rate duration of portfolios and buying shorter dated corporate mm. bonds and shorter dated high yield, um, buying floaters in order to try and strip out some of the interest rate exposure. Um, but it hasn't fully addressed the credit factor because um, there are two different types of duration, uh, duration being the length, uh, mm. maturity, the give sensitivity or take, to interest sensitivity rates, to interest yeah. rates yeah. of a security. Um, there's an interest rate duration and a credit duration in, in a corporate bond. Most people think of those two things moving in line with each other. Actually, they're two 
different factors. And you can shorten interest rate duration down to three months while maintaining five-year duration in the credit space. Mm-hmm. We just don't have the, that many tools in the ETF space today offering that kind of thoughtful exposure. The, the main products that have been successful are much more what I call, you know, basket cash basket products where you have 500 to 2,000 different bonds and you just kind of lump a lot of different names and securities into the basket and you kind of say, well, if I take a kitchen sink approach to investing, I, I know I'll kind of be in the ballpark of what's going on with bonds. Mm-hmm. A traditional pure play fixed income investor would never do that. You know, if at a bare minimum, they would be very selective as to which names and which securities from a particular issuer they would buy. And usually nowadays, they would use a number of other securities like CDS, um, futures, um, inflation derivatives to get the specific fixed income exposure they believe in. Mm. So do you, do you see more developments on that kind of... Uh... Well, you know, it's a bit self-serving, but that that's what we're focused on at Tabula. You know, my background was 18 years at Morgan Stanley, 14 of those in fixed income, uh, seven years developing um, Source, which has now become Invesco's ETF business. Um, and I fundamentally have believed for decades that the fixed income asset class has not seen the level of focus that it should have versus equities. If you think about the FT, um, you know, the back pages, you might have seven pages on equities for every one page on fixed income. Mm. It's not proportionate to to the size of the asset class, nor actually to the level of uh, complexity of the asset class. Mm. Um, but the equity asset class is a story asset class. It's much easier for an investor to come into the equity asset class and kind of get told something that makes sense to them, even if they're not technically capable in the space. Whereas fixed income is a much more technical asset class where mm. you need to understand that you can actually calculate returns over five-year periods and be relatively accurate about that. In the equity space, it's all about whether people like stuff or not, <laughs> right? And you can say, oh, this is good value at, at, at a yeah. 10 PE, and then it goes to 20 PE, and you go, it's still good value. <laughs> um, you can't do that in fixed income. All about greed and fear, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. um, so, uh, yeah, talking about kind of projected returns, and I guess past returns this year, as you've mentioned, we've seen yields come down to even, you know, negative levels, something, quality bonds, I suppose, are looking very expensive. Uh, Where are those, um, beyond what you've already mentioned, where are those pockets of value? It's about identifying value factors and leveraging them. So, for example, if you say that in a corporate bond, um, the underlying risk-free rate is negative, but the spread on the average investment grade issuer is 50 basis points, Mm. right? And the spread on the average high yield issuer is 250 basis points. So there's clearly value there. Now you have to take your view as to how much value and do you think that you would like uh, just one turn of exposure to that or perhaps leveraging your credit exposure, you know, 50 to 100 to 150 by taking three times long on the investment grade might be more value than going down the credit spectrum and buying higher yield. Mm, mm. If you think about this, this is a bit like saying, do I want to take um, a household name uh, and take multiple exposures to it? Or do I want to go to a lesser known company that has a lot more leveraged balance sheet and let their business management CFO make a decision as to what to do with my cash? Actually, leveraging investment grade leaves the investor more in control of how much exposure they have than giving the money to more and more risky high yield companies and seeing how they do. I think the other challenge um, is understanding the credits that you're investing in. And in the investment grade space, most of us know 
um, the companies that mm. are in the investment grade space. So when you start talking about, um, you know, whether it's uh, IBM or J&J or these other, you know, consumer companies, we all know them and we see them and we interact with them. Some of the, the high yield companies, we just don't know and we have no ability to analyze their credits. And actually, they're professionals who spend their whole lives analyzing a small basket of high yield companies mm. just to understand them. So, you know, you have to make a decision as an investor as to what you know, you believe, and how you're going to create um, yield for your portfolio. Mm. And I think um, the big challenge for people with fixed income is this is supposed to be a yield play. It's supposed mm. to be your more uh, stable yield opportunity versus the more volatility that you pick up in the equity price space. Um, so it's incumbent on us in the fixed income space to deliver interesting, stable yielding products so that we remain relevant. It's mm, interesting, isn't it? That, uh, like you say, you have to perhaps go much further up the risk spectrum for uh, what investors might see as a meaningful yield. If you stick to the pure, the plain vanilla cash basket products, mm, absolutely. Mm. And this is what we've seen people do. They've gone from investment grade, high yield, emerging markets, yeah. uh, bank loans, bank capital, you know, all these different things, constantly searching for a higher coupon. You know, fixed income investors are very busy dissecting where mm. yield comes from in, in securities and extracting the um, factors that deliver returns and focusing and leveraging those factors. We're trying to allow a more uh, a generalist investor, a multi-asset class investor, access to these more um, bespoke uh, fixed income exposures. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, now, let's turn from one source of yield to another. This week, we've been exploring the, uh, the exciting world of equity income funds. So, Leonora, if I'm using an equity growth fund at the minute... Um, what sort of challenges will I face and what kind of role do we think equity income funds could play in this uh, this environment? Yeah, well, I think the issue is equity markets face a number of threats uh, to their progress and upwards march. Mm. Had a good time, but that might not continue <laughs> uh, in the future. Perhaps one of the biggest global threats, which uh, uh, doubtless we've uh, seen a lot about over the months, is the trade war between US and China, which seems to yeah. go one way or another, one week's yeah. better, one week's not. Nobody knows where it's going and Donald Trump's utterly unpredictable. So that's one threat to those markets and globally, really, to global companies. Another big issue is the world's biggest economy, the US. There's fears of recession there. Um, the reason is, as turning back to bonds, the US yield curve or shape represented by yields and US government bonds of dis different maturities has inverted. Now, this occurs when short-dated bonds yield more than debt with a later maturity date and has helped predict several recessions. Mm. Um, and I suppose just turning more locally, certainly for UK equities, perhaps European ones too, there's obviously the threat of Brexit and the effects that could have in the UK economy and certainly certain sections of the UK stock yep. market. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean... If you're if you're thinking an equity growth fund is looking a bit too mm. challenged, a bit too risky, uh, is equity income? What does that kind of offer you? 
Right. Well, it's uh, there's a number of positive things here. Um, equity income funds pay dividends. Now, a benefit to that is even if their share price isn't doing so well, mm. why are you waiting for it to get better? You're still getting those dividend payments. So that's rather nice. But likelihood is, um, you know, if it is a, you know, an equity income fund, an equity income share, um, hopefully that share price still won't quite, hopefully that share price won't do as badly. And the reason for that is because equity income funds tend to invest in companies based on the ability to pay regular dividends, which are typically in more defensive sectors such as consumer staples and utilities. These often have um, defensive characteristics, both in terms of business model and how they run, meaning they could fare well in times of equity market volatility, aka they might fall, but they'll fall probably a lot less, I don't know, sort of a mining stock or some, I don't know, kind of Mm. small cap, Mm. weird company that's a bit (laughs) dodgy or something like that. Um, And I think, I mean, another, uh, you know, another positive attribute is that, um, you know, we said defensive boring sectors, as, as you might think of them, they hold up. Um, some of them have lower sensitivity to economic growth rates. Um, but one positive here is that, you know, even if markets turn and go back up, it's not like they're not going to just sit there. They might well also offer some upside. So there's a number of benefits to yeah. turning direct income in um, times of possible volatility. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I, I mean... Obviously, in current market conditions, there's no free lunch. Um, so let's turn to the, the drawbacks. I mean, what are you sacrificing? What are the risks you're taking if you're buying these kind of funds? Okay, well, there's a number of things here. Um, not all equity income funds are defensive. Some of them invest in smaller mid-caps, so they're probably quite risky. Yep. Um, that aside, um, even if you do invest in one that's, let's say, perhaps focused on some of these safer areas, um, a focus on dividends doesn't guarantee, you know, um, a defensive approach uh, necessarily. Um, and the reason for that is because companies that pay high dividends uh, sometimes do this at the expense of other priorities, such as investment investing in themselves uh, to the detriment of their future performance and ultimately their share price performance. Mm, mm. Um, and a high dividend can be a sign that future payments of a company itself are at risk because I suppose effectively, well, you know, things aren't right, you know, going to bribe people to keep holding your shares, eh? <laughs> uh, but actually, you know, you're about to go belly up or something. Um, or, you know, it could be just because of, um, you know, a company, you know, in the kind of area it is. And a good example here is the latest edition of the Janus Henderson Global Dividend Index, a report on dividend payouts around the world. Um, This reported that in the second quarter of 2019, the biggest dividend payers included mining company Rio Tinto, car maker Daimler, and an investment bank, HSBC. Um, now, these companies are in very risky sectors, mining companies in particular. I mean, these can be relied on volatile commodity prices. Mm. Car makers are exposed to the trade war that we referred to earlier. Uh, and banks normally struggle without rises in interest rates. And they, they don't seem to be going up anytime soon, do they? <laughs> no. So... Um if you do want a, a defensive equity income this week, I guess we, we've looked at a few examples. Um, is there one that kind of springs to mind that you think is an interesting one to look at? Um, funds, yes. 
I mean, we've obviously highlighted a few of these in the big theme, but one that I think's um, you know probably a really good option is Troy Trojan Income mm. or its sister fund, which I would like to mention, Troy Trojan Ethical Income, which yep. is similar strategy but takes a, an ethical strategy. And uh, yes, yeah, some good reasons to hold it. I'll, I'll turn to Troy Trojan Income because it's got a longer track record. The other fund was recently launched. Mm. Um, Troy Trojan Income has typically performed well against other UK equity income funds and the FTSE All Share Index. It has a relatively high net dividend yield of 4%. Mm. Um, that's not a bad sign um, because its managers, Francis Brooke and Hugo Yeo, take a defensive approach. And they actually said at the end of, at the end of July um, that it would be too risky to grow uh, their dividend. Uh, so they've actually been lowering the fund's exposure to high yielding names and moving to more to companies they think have, let's say, dividend growth potential, uh, but aren't necessarily at the moment high yielders. Um, and just think another thing to mention about those funds um, is that they're run by Triasset Management. Um, now, this company as a house has a really cautious investment approach of all its funds, um, not just the equity income fund. And the reason is that their house philosophy prioritises the avoidance of permanent capital loss via cautious mm. asset allocations mm. and investment in high quality companies. And one of their stated aims is to preserve the real value of its investors' capital and provide a return that can compound over time. So if you think markets are going to turn down or you're feeling a bit nervous or jittery, um, it might be no bad thing to have a look at Troy Asset Management Funds in general. All right, okay. And obviously those uh, those funds you just mentioned, they're open-ended funds, but we can't ignore... The other side of the equation, which is the investment trust universe. Why might an investment trust be a good choice if you're looking at these sort of defensive equity income names? Okay, well, some stru- there's a, a key structural difference here. Investment trusts don't have to pay out all their income every year. They can hold a bit aside and put a portion of the income they get from their underlying investments into reserve. So basically what this means is investment is paying a dividend, perhaps holding it or raising it every year. They come to a uh, year when the, um, the income from the underlying investments don't match what they had last year or enable them to raise it. So what do we do? We dip into reserve mm. to either maintain it or raise it. So they can have um, a very stable and or a sort of like increasing dividend profile. Um, and what this has meant is that a number of investment trusts have really long records of increasing their dividends each year. And perhaps the most ex- outstanding example of a dividend grower among closed-end funds is City of London Investment Trust. This has grown its dividend mm. every year for 53 years wow. in a row. Um, its total dividend for its financial year to 30th June 2019 uh, was 18.6p per share, and that was an increase of 5.1% over the previous year. Uh, this trust also has an attractive yield. No surprises at the moment, 4.5%. Mm. Um, I think another key attraction of this particular investment trust is that it has one of the lowest ongoing charges of all active funds. It's 0.41%. And this might fall even further because as of the 1st of January, it reduced its management fee by about 10%. Mm. 
stability, uh, you know, is, is quite stable in other ways. It's been managed by the same manager, Job Curtis, since 1991. Uh, and his track record over the past 10 years has been really good. The trust's net asset value total return over this period has been 203%, whereas the FTSE All Share Index has only grown 167%. Now, there is a downside, um, and that downside is that City of London Investment Trust has a greater focus on FTSE 100 stocks mm. than many of its investment trust equity income peers. So this means it doesn't always beat the AIC UK equity income sector average in contrast to peers that have a focus on smaller companies. But I think, as we pointed out, it beats the FTSE All Share Index over the long term. And if you, I looked at its figures this morning, at the moment, it's one and five year total returns are actually ahead of its peer group average. Mm. Perhaps another positive, you know, obviously, because we've been talking about market volatility, uh, another good thing about its investment trust, it makes positive returns in most calendar years. So if there's market volatility ahead, it might well hold up better than some of its mid and small cap peers. Um, and as an example, um, over one year, 12 months to the present, many equity income investment trusts have made negative share price total returns, but City of London Investment Trust has made a positive share price total return of 2%. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess that makes a big difference when uh, when you're looking to protect your uh, Yeah, it's portfolio, a defensive it? profile. You know, mm. it's not going to like race ahead. It's not going to shoot no, the lights out, no. but it's just that steady, you know, that, that steady kind of return each year, not losing too much money. Um, I suppose it, it stacks up to good returns over the long time, over the long term, a bit, a bit like the approach that Troy uh, asset management funds take. Yeah, yeah. So uh, plenty of choice, I guess. Um, Okay, well, thanks for that. That brings us to the end of today's show. But do also look at this week's Investors Chronicle or go onto the website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on equity income funds as a defensive play on markets. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.